Alright, so we've been doing a series on conversion, and I started last week about the three that will testify. What did we talk about last week? What was the first of the three? Very good. Today, we're going to talk about water. And how important these three things are, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. We'll get to blood at our celebration service next Saturday. But today we want to talk about water. So let's go back to our key passage in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4-9. through 9. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. That's pretty inspiring. This is a victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater. Because it is God's testimony that He has given about His Son. And see, when you actually look at this element of water, it plays a very important part in the story of God and His creation. It was a a fun study for myself just going through the Bible, all the different areas and places where water was super vital to the story. We can start in the very beginning. Where's one of the first places water plays a huge part in God's story? The creation. Genesis 1-2. For sake of time, I'm just going to read little clippets from these verses, but go back and read more. There's a lot of great detail there. In Genesis 1-2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of of the waters. And through that surface, God spoke into existence, the Spirit hovering over the waters, all creation. Seems very important then that us being a new creation is probably going to involve water and spirit as well. And as we'll learn next week, the blood of Jesus. But then, you know, so we think of this one. How about the flood? That was a lot of water in the story. Let's read this little clip it in Genesis uh, 6, verse 17. Understand. Speaking to Noah, I am bringing a flood. Flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wife. So here we see in the story that God used water both to bring judgment on a wicked world, but at the same time, brought deliverance to Noah and his family. What's amazing is you go to the actual story, once that flood had wiped clean the earth, saved Noah and his family, it says a wind, and the actual word is the Hebrew ruah, which is the same word for Holy Spirit, helped all the waters recede. Again, water and spirit and a whole lot of blood since everything perished. These three testify. Now what's interesting is, Something that we sometimes forget is that the first century writers, the apostles and those who wrote the New Testament text, they didn't have the New Testament. They wrote it. So when they tried to pull out God's scriptures, they would come from the Old Testament. And we don't realize that as we read commentaries on the Old and New, 
the first century writers were giving commentary on the Old Testament. And so as the New Testament writers reading about the flood, he's going to make commentary. How does that apply to us in the first century? And look at what we find in 1 Peter 3 as Peter is talking about the flood and what does that mean for us as disciples during that first century. And obviously, because we're continuing to be disciples of Jesus, as Peter taught and his, his disciples taught and so on, also applies to us today. In verse 20 of 1 Peter 3, it says, "...who in the former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water, and baptism, which this prefigured..." Now, this is not referring to baptism. It's referring to the flood. So he's saying baptism, which the flood prefigured. Very interesting, and I'll define that in a moment. Now saves you. For those who think in some false teaching that baptism doesn't save you, this is pretty clear. Just as God used the water of no- during the time of Noah to save him and his family, baptism, which the flood prefigured, now saves you. You can't get any clearer than that. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not just some cleansing ritual like the Jews practice. You go get wet, that doesn't save you. Baptism needs to involve something as you go in the water. And we've learned already so far in the lessons we've shared, it requires learning about Jesus. What your sins did to Jesus. How you need to repent. How you need to be made a disciple. How you need to call on the name of the Lord. Then you've got to be baptized to receive forgiveness of sins, to receive the Spirit, and to be raised to a new life. That's baptism. Just going and getting in water without all those other elements at the same moment, it's not conversion. Did that twice. As a baby, definitely did enjoy it. And later on in life I did it, but I wasn't a disciple. Didn't even know what that meant. This is very clear. It's not just some ritual. It's not a work. It says, but it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So your conscience has to be involved. It's got to affect not just your mind logically, it's got to move your heart to a new life. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if it's not connected to Jesus, it's not what He's talking about. Now what's very interesting is this, I use the NRSV translation on purpose because it is one of the more accurate Greek to English translations. In case you didn't know that, it's considered the most accurate, especially in theological debate uh, from Greek to English. So this idea of prefigured, this comes from a Greek word, and you're going to not be surprised by this, it actually might shock you a little bit, antitupos. As you know, Ed Doss has been doing a great series in Digging Deeper called Antitype Type. Antitupos means figure pointing to or early indication of. So according to this text, Peter is saying, guys, the flood, that was pointing to what now saves you, baptism. That flood, that was just an early indication of God's ultimate plan to redeem mankind because a flood was to destroy the wickedness of man. So he's saying it's pointing to this. The antitype, antitupos, was leading to the type, which is baptism. There's a lot of false teaching where they say, no, baptism is just a symbol of. No, it's the opposite. All these other things are a symbol of what God had in mind from the beginning. A redeeming of life through water. And obviously we know from the other lessons we've learned, spirit must be involved. 
We'll learn next week, blood must be involved. So this is pretty clear. Let's look at another antitoup. Okay? The Red Sea. Was there water involved? Yes, there was. Look in chapter Exodus 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind, and this is where the movies get it wrong, all that night. Didn't happen in a moment when Moses put the staff down like the movies. No, it happened all night long. Because that's a lot of water to move, you know what I'm saying? And it was a wind, again, wind, ruah, spirit, often referred to. It says, The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, just like they were divided in creation. Very interesting. And all the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. Not, it's not even muddy. That's pretty miraculous. And the waters were like a wall to them on the right and their left. And we know from the story that the Israelites, through those two walls of water, they were delivered. The Egyptians who followed were not. They were destroyed in it. Again, the wind, spirit involved, water involved, and the blood of the Egyptians involved. These three testify. And then when we think of the New Testament writers as they look to this anti-type, what did they have to say about them in the first century and for us today? Look at what now Paul says. Peter wrote about the flood. Paul now talks about the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And look what he puts. And all were baptized into Moses. That's an interesting statement. In the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So just like Peter, Paul saying, guys, the Red Sea, that was pointing to, that was showing what was going to be greater, baptism. He's speaking to the Corinthian Christians who were baptized. That's who this letter is written to. And I think that Paul is citing these aspects of the story of liberation in the same way that baptism in Christ liberates us. And I think even the fact that he refers to the cloud and the sea, the cloud was the Spirit of God, the sea is the water. Spirit, water. Again, we see these working together. And then you think about the spiritual food and drink, the body and the blood of Christ, the same food, the same drink. Anti-type, type. You want to know more about that? There's so many of them. Come to Digging Deeper. Ed Doss is doing a great series on a lot of these anti-type types. But again, anti-types were not the reality. Even though they're historical, they were meant to symbolize what is reality. And what we see is it's God in baptism redeeming His people. And I don't have, to mention, I don't have time to mention all the other ways that God used water. We even heard from Ed about Jonah. Water was involved with that, was it not? Here's some other quick ones, but I don't have time to read the passages. It was used as a test to decide who would fight with Gideon. Who are going to be my warriors? Water was the thing used. How they drank the water. Lab it like a dog. That's the ones he picked. As a test of the willingness of Naaman, who had, who had leprosy to be healed based on the instructions of the prophet. 
And he at first was like, well, why should I do that? I could get washed in my own rivers. If he had told you something greater, would you not have done it? So do it seven times, and when he obeyed, he was saved. He was healed of leprosy. If God wanted us to do something greater than baptism to be saved, He could have done that. But since He said do this, should we not? Just a question. What about the parting of the Jordan? So the Israelites could enter the promised land just as we leave darkness through baptism into the light, the promised heaven for all of us who believe. Water again. Jesus was baptized in it. He also turned it into wine. And He walked on it. And there are countless other stories of water being involved. So are you starting to see the importance of water in God's story? But let's really narrow it in down as something that testifies not only to Jesus being the Son of God, but also that Christ can be in us and we can be in Christ just as we learn with the Spirit. How does the water help Christ to come in us and us to be in Christ? We recall in John 3 verse 5 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus... Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is about as clear as you can get. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. How can anyone in common Christianity say, I can just pray to the Lord, no water is involved, and be into the kingdom? Jesus made it very clear. Unless there's water and Spirit, you cannot enter. You can say whatever prayer you want. You are disobeying Jesus. That's clear. In Acts 2.38, the one who was given the keys to that kingdom, right? Peter. If he's given the keys, that means he's going to be one to open the door of how we enter the kingdom. So do you want to follow the guy with the keys or some guy thousands of years later telling you a different way to be saved? Come on, Derek. Preach. As for me, I'm going to go with the guy with the keys. It's like you're at a party. You don't go with the guy who doesn't have the keys to the car. You want to go with the one who has the keys to the car and who is sober. You get in another car, you ain't going to last long. I'm going with Peter. What did he say? Jesus said, you must be born of water and spirit. Peter, here's the keys. You'll know the moment. Moment comes, and here's what Peter has to say to those who are asking, what should I do? I killed Jesus. I deserve condemnation. I should be in hell for my sins. I killed the Son of God. What do I do? How do I enter the kingdom? How am I saved? Peter replied, repent. Be baptized. Water. That's what it means. Each of you. That means everyone. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I do not see Peter going, just pray. Invite Jesus into your heart. He says repent. He also doesn't say, learn about Jesus, repent. A couple years later, maybe then you'll think about, hey, maybe I need to change a little bit. Maybe then a couple more years later... Hey, why don't you get baptized? It's just a symbol representing something. It's not that important. Oh, forgiveness of sins. Oh, I think you got it back when you said Jesus is in your heart. But didn't it just say get baptized for the forgiveness of sins? And, and flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth. Yeah, the Spirit will eventually come on you. We'll pray on you. The Spirit will come to Where did all that garbage come from? Come on, dear. That's not here. He's got the keys. 
And when you get to heaven following any other plan, I have a feeling Peter's going to be there with the keys swinging like, I told you. And you're going to miss out. And how many years of my 23 years thinking I'm a Christian followed a plan that Peter never gave? Water. Spirit. Forgiveness of sins, which you already know is going to mean some blood is involved. We'll get more into that detail next week. I think there's two conversions in Acts that specifically help us see the importance of water to this conversion moment, to this new birth. Let's look at the first one, the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 8, verse 26 through 31, we read, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. That's a pretty uh, professional dude right there. He had come to worship in Jerusalem, which is pretty amazing because, guys, if you know the actual law, a eunuch wasn't even allowed to enter the temple. But here's a guy who was searching for God. And he was sitting in his chair and on his way home reading the prophet Isaiah. Man, this dude even got a scroll with Isaiah. That could not have been easy. This guy is no joke. He is serious about wanting to know about God. And I don't think it's a joke that he even had Isaiah because Isaiah is one of those that actually has a prophecy for eunuchs. That's super encouraging. That's a whole other lesson and story. But I don't think it's a coincidence. He knew that this had a promise and hope for him, even as a eunuch, that he could have a legacy despite not being able to have children. That's pretty cool. So he's, he's in this place reading this. The Spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. I think that's good for all of us who sometimes wonder, what's evangelism? It's not about you banging people on their head saying they're going to hell and they need to believe in Jesus. Just go join them in their life. Not their sinful life. You don't need to go to places that would cause you to struggle, but we need to go where they are. Just go to that chariot. That's all the Spirit said. It didn't give them any other direction. Go to the chariot. If you've got some guys that like shooting guns, you're in Texas. Go do it. If you've got some sisters that love scrapbooking, go do it. Go to the chariot, whatever that may be for your friends and family. Amen? A little evangelism teaser for you right there. So, so he goes, when Philip ran up to it, and he noticed he ran, he didn't like, okay, God, I'll go. <laughs> He's like, yeah, chariot, let's do it. And he runs up there. And when he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and you love these moments, guys, don't you? When you're like sharing your faith with someone, you've joined them in their chariot, and they start asking questions about God, and you're like, ding, I'm ready. At least I hope you are. Hopefully you know what to do from that. Philip did. And he said... Do you understand what you're reading? How can I? He said, unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now I love this particular specific description of this encounter for a very important reason. It's going to help us deal with another false teaching about salvation. There's this teaching called, Accept Jesus into your heart. Where does that come from? It comes from a passage in Romans 10. And if you only read these verses, you might be able to agree with it. But if you just dig a little deeper and understand this actual conversion that the Ethiopian is going through, you're going to see the absurdity of it. Let's go to Romans 10 verse 9. 
If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that's very key because it's using future tense. It does not say, if you confess, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, you are saved. It doesn't say that. It says if you do these things, you will be. So you've got to start with these. You've got to confess. Jesus needs to be Lord in your mind. You've got to really see it in your heart. And at some point, as you continue to follow Jesus and obey what He says for salvation, you will be saved. But not at the moment of it. Or it would have said you are saved at that moment. It would use the present tense. Not future. But let's read on. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes on Him will not be put to shame. Since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all riches blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and this is actually a quote from the Old Testament, will be saved. It doesn't say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord are saved. It doesn't say that. It says we'll be saved. So we need to learn, is there a specific moment that you would call on the name of the Lord? We'll get to that with another conversion. But keep that in the back of your mind. In the context of this entire passage, Paul's addressing the problem of the Israelites. Unbelief that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Some believe that all we have to do is profess faith and accept Jesus in our heart, and at that moment, supposedly, we are saved. How could that possibly be? Because even the phrase they quote says will be, not are in that moment. If they would only just read a little further, we're going to see the same thing we see the Ethiopian eunuch go through. Do you understand what you're reading? No. How can I unless someone guides me? How can I know when to call in the name of the Lord so I will be saved? Go back to Romans 10 and let's read a little further. Verse 14. How then can they call on Him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, The Lord who has believed our message. So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes through the message of Jesus Christ. How can I call if I don't know? How many times in my religious life of 23 years did I call in the name of the Lord, have the altar call, pray Jesus in my heart, I lost count. But I didn't know about Jesus. I didn't know what it meant to follow Him. I wasn't taught what it means to be a a disciple of Jesus. I wasn't taught how my sin crucified Him and how I need to repent of those sins. There's a lot involved here. I had to be taught. I had to be guided. And so do we. It's pretty clear that this exceptional heart is complete lie. False teaching. And yet many hold on to it as their salvation. And they will be severely disappointed in the end. How are they going to know? We've got to tell them. We cannot get weak-willed. We cannot water down the gospel and be afraid to tell people exactly what Jesus says is necessary to be a Christian. We cannot accept this stuff. We can't be afraid to defend the true salvation that God has given us or they will not make it. 
And I'm so thankful that people didn't accept my religious heritage and challenged me to look to the Scriptures. Help me to see clearly what God has made clear from the beginning. That water, spirit, as we'll learn next week, blood must be involved. Just like this eunuch, all of us need more than just faith. He needed someone to explain to him the message of Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be redeemed, to be saved, to be given new life? Obviously, Philip, being a disciple of Jesus, who followed the same pattern Peter had given, who had the keys, when he saw the opportunity and he's hearing about, oh, he's reading about this, he knew exactly what to say. Let's read on in Acts 8, verse 32. Now, the Scripture passage he was reading was this. This is so God. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip knew what to say. Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that Scripture. Do you realize, guys, we can help people become disciples with the Old Testament? They didn't have the New Testament yet to make disciples. You can help someone become a disciple of Jesus with the Old Testament. Try it. It's a lot of fun. You'll find all the same things. God's plan has not changed. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. Ding! So whatever happens next would tell us something about what Philip was talking about in that chariot ride. Why would would the eunuch even go, Hey, water! Look what it says. The eunuch said, Look, there's water! Seriously, like, is that a big deal when you're driving around Texas? Like, hey, there's water! But to him, it's like, everything you've been telling me on this chariot ride, everything that you say is the way for someone to be saved, to be given eternal life, to be forgiven of our sins, to get the indwelling of the Spirit, because I killed Jesus, but Jesus raised from the dead. Look, there's water! What could keep me from being baptized? He didn't go, hey, what prayer do I need to say so I can be in Jesus? He knew very clearly from Philip. Water! Water! Philip! Water! I need the water! I'm in the desert! You don't find it often! Right now! What's stopping me? So he ordered the chariot to stop. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. Thank you, Ed. Down into the water. Wasn't a sprinkle. And we know how far down? Because it says he went down the water and he baptized him. When they came up of the water, sounds like immersion to me, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Now that's a scary one for any of you who are about to be baptized. The guy you're studying with, you come up out of the water and they're gone. I wouldn't recommend that for new converts who are just baptized, okay? I think you want someone to walk with you, but the eunuch did good because later on we find disciples in Africa. So God obviously thought the eunuch could do it. But I don't highly recommend leaving someone after baptism. So, teens, when your friends get baptized, don't run out of the room. Stay present. Don't freak them out, alright? But the Spirit takes Philip away. Amazing. Philip 
absolutely had to have taught what Peter taught all along. What the church taught all along. Does Jesus... Is this, is this about the prophet or someone else? And Phil goes, it's about Jesus. Let me tell you about the good news. And he goes into the whole story. What needs to take place? He understood, I'm not saved. I need to be baptized with water and spirit and the blood of Jesus because you've been telling me about Jesus crucified for me. Look, there's water! What's stopping me from getting baptized? What's stopping you? If you haven't done this yet, what's stopping you? Are you holding on to false teaching that doesn't save you? When the Bible is so clear? Well, if you don't think that's enough, let's look at someone who is really, really valuable to the Christian faith. Paul. This one will be a little quicker for sake of time. But the conversion of Paul is recorded three times. In case you didn't get the first one, it's recorded two more times in the book of Acts. One of them is Luke sharing about the conversion. The other two is Paul himself sharing about his conversion. But in Acts 22, we see a very interesting statement made. Someone in Acts 22, verse 12, someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me, this is Paul speaking, and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. As you know, Jesus met Paul on the road, and he was blinded. Three days. I think that's an important fact for Paul because he was killing Christians. And I think Jesus wanted to make sure for the next three days, same three days I was down, all you're going to remember is the last thing you saw, me. Whenever you get bright light, you only, your mind only remembers the last thing you saw with that light. That's all Paul could remember was Jesus. And if you look at the conversion story, he goes, Lord, Lord, who are you? I am the one you are crucifying. Persecuting. Crazy. He goes on. In that very hour I looked up and I saw Him. And He said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one and to hear the words from His mouth, since you will be a witness for Him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on His name. Now we get it. Only in that moment, I killed Jesus. I need to repent. I need to be a follower of Jesus. I'm at the water now. I can't do this. This is faith. It's not a work. Me just jumping in the water doesn't do it. It's faith in what's happening in that moment. You are Lord. Jesus, You are Lord. You're not saved that moment. Not until you go down for the sin to be removed. So then the Spirit could come in. So when you come out, you are a new creation. You are saved. All that happens in a matter of a moment. It's not spread out over months and weeks and years. It all happens very quickly. In fact, the longest recorded conversion in Acts is Paul. Three days. It's pretty clear to me. It's pretty clear to Paul. Pretty clear to Ananias and Philip and the eunuch. Water and Spirit. What point do you call in the name of the Lord? We all know. When you're standing at the waters of baptism and you turn your life over publicly, Jesus is Lord. But you're not saved by saying that. It says you call in the name, you will be saved. You're saved when you finally get down in the water. Your sins are washed away, forgiven. You receive the gift of the Spirit and you are raised again. Somewhere in that, blood will be involved. We'll get to that next week. 
But I think of these last two passages that Paul himself uses to describe baptism, to describe water that testifies to you being in Christ and Christ being in you. We'll close with these. Colossians 2, verse 11. You were also circumcised in Him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the working of God. It's not a work to be baptized. God does the work through your faith by being obedient to His plan, who raised Him from the dead. And the last passage, Galatians 3.27, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. It is a moment, a new birth, a true conversion. We've seen the two that testify, the Spirit and the water. On Saturday, we'll see where does blood fit into this equation. I hope we are convinced that water is absolutely necessary for salvation. Saturday, we'll look at the blood. Let us go to God in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we are so grateful for Your Word, but also for Your plan that even all the other encounters we read in the Bible that involve water, they were all just an antitype. Something pointing to, signifying in the future, the real reality, which is baptism. The moment where through water we can be cleansed of our sins, we can receive Your Spirit, and as we'll learn next week, Your blood truly cleanses us. God, I pray as we go out this week that we will never water down convictions of salvation, but that we will see the value and importance of water in your plan. It is not our work. It is your working through Jesus Christ and us being obedient to Him. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.